Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. Thanks for being here. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross, and back after a six-month Hiatus in the Philippines from Motley Fool Income Investor James Early. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, Thank you, guys. Thank you. Well, James, we, we missed you. We yep. have got the latest on consumer goods, banking, smart homes, and more. We will go to Detroit to get the latest on the automotive industry. And as always, we'll share a few stocks you can put on your watch list. But we begin with retail. Best Buy was one of the best performing stocks of 2013, but shares fell more than 30% this week after Best Buy said sales fell at the end of the year. And Ron, CEO Hubert, uh, Hubert Jolie, called the oh, holiday... is that how you pronounce that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I go with the French. It sounds Jolie. Wow. Jolie, Jolie, doesn't it? He called the holiday <clears throat> season, quote, intensely promotional. <laughs> um, is that code for something horrible? That's code for doing what you need to do to compete against Amazon and to stop what they call showrooming. Um, so they're doing what they need to do how, there. And how's that working out? <laughs> yeah. It's cutting margins. Um, it is getting people in the stores, but it's not doing anything for profitability. But they're doing what they really, what they need to do. What, what else can you do? You reduce your footprint. You lower prices to compete. You differentiate, differentiate yourself based on service, and and you go from there. I think you have to accept lower levels of profitability, lower levels of margins going forward. It's it's a it's a new world, and Best Buy has to adapt. It's very very tough as we see here. Ron, are you a showroomer yourself? I mean, what do you feel about the <laughs> ethics of showrooming? Well, you you know they are combating it now, so they'll match the price. So if you go into Best Buy and you say, "Well, I can get it cheaper on Amazon," yeah. they'll say, well, "Well, don't bother. You're here already. Let me I sell see, it to I you." See. Um, I think the ethics of showrooming are, are fine. Actually, um, it is a so even without such world. a deal, you would, you would showroom. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't have that much time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same boat. All right. Um, Jason, we're seeing this in other retailers. We saw it earlier this week, uh, and last week we talked about you know Bed Bath and Beyond, um, SodaStream uh, tanking this week on lowered guidance. I'm 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 not changing what I've been saying for months, which is I just have this really bad feeling about the retail <laughs> industry in general. Well, I mean, it, it's certainly uh, in the midst of of just a generational shift here. I mean, e-commerce is still very uh, is is very young, and and I think that we're going to see. Uh, this this play out over many many years, and you, you look at Best Buy, and really, I mean, they were just fatally late uh, to to the most crucial part of this game, and that was making that switch over uh, to e-commerce and focusing on the advantages of that business model. You know, one thing you want to pay attention to as this goes on, I mean, you you need to look at. There's a metric called uh, revenue per employee. Uh, and that basically tells you – it can give you an idea as to the potential of the business model, the profitability of the business model, how efficient it is. And so just for comparison here, uh, Best Buy's revenue per employee is $291,712. Not too bad. Amazon's revenue per employee, however, is $793,000, and and that's a considerable difference, Chris. So, I mean, when you look at it from that perspective, you can see the efficiencies and the advantages of that e-commerce model. And I I don't know that there really is anything they can do to combat this. Uh, I do agree, and they, of course, were late to online. But interestingly, that really was the only bright spot um, that Best Buy could point to, where their comps were up 24%. Um, so you know you go from a small base and any little bit helps, but um, they are they are at least moving towards that. 
but I saw one headline that included the word bloodbath. And, <laughs> and, and, and let's, st- let's just step back for a second. Keep in mind, even with the drop this week, if you go back to January 1st, 2013, the stock has still more than doubled. So what are investors to think now about Best Buy? What should we pay attention to? The double of the last year or th- the latest quarter, which really just looks terrible? And again, I've said this before. Retailers who can't get it done in the holiday quarter, which is the most important quarter, I'm just really suspect of that. The stock performance of last year can be tricky to to get your head around. I would argue that you, in, if you invested at Best Buy at those low levels, you were taking on a significant amount of risk, and therefore the return should be commensurate with that risk. and And it did work out. Um, but you were really you were taking a shot in the dark there that Best Buy would even stay in existence, and I think that that shot still exists. That Best Buy just has nowhere to go, and this could just be kind of a walking wounded kind of play. Yeah, I think a couple of red flags that you can keep an eye out for when it comes to these types of retailers. We saw it with Radio Shack a while back when they kept on referring in their releases to their total liquidity available. You know, they're basically <laughs> telling us about every possible resource they may have available to them. That's never really a good sign. It, with Best Buy, we, we saw, I think, over the holiday season, a lot of uh, reference to investments in pricing, which is just code for, you know, cutting prices to the bone to try to get stuff out the door. And when you hear companies saying investments in pricing, I think you need to you need to look a little bit deeper as to really what that means. Look at those margin trends because the chances are they're probably coming yeah. down over time. The, the last two times I've been in Radio Shack, I was literally the only customer in there. So you were there for, the, to buy batteries actually, no, my or customer, something my, more? My son was there. The first time he took off his diaper, I won't finish the story, <laughs> but I was glad I was the only one in there. But And what were you there for? Uh, buy some obscure battery. Right. right. That's, yeah, it, that's yeah. it. It should be called Batteries Shack. Well, there is a battery warehouse or battery depot, so I think they're going to be late to that game, too. All right, moving on. Morgan Stanley and Citigroup were just two of the big investment banks reporting quarterly results this week. And, James, Citigroup really had a pretty good 2013. Michael Corbett, the new CEO, the relatively new CEO, getting some some kudos. Um, but shares down this week on their latest results. When you, when you look at the big banks, what do you see? Well, Chris, overall, these results were, were not too bad. I mean, banks have had a good year since, since you know, January of, of last year. But you know, they just don't excite me anymore. I don't know what it is. Just, you know, I like to be excited too. You know, but it's just don't I, I don't see the risk reward trade off as an investor. I and mean, basically, th- this this year will be the kind of the the year of the big legal settlements. Uh, advisory type work was not too good. IPOs were, were were good, but advisory work in general was not good. Bond underwriting was pretty bad across the board. Wealth management, you know, we we're you know gouging the the, the rich people basically was their their one <laughs> bright business. spot. Yeah, it is very good business actually. That was pretty soundly up across. The board. So, yeah, a good quarter, but you know, banks are, are not. I mean, for perspective, Morgan Stanley is is trying to meet uh, a ten percent target return on equity. Now, in maybe like two thousand seven, I think that was probably twenty percent. So, we've got a long way to go. Uh, Jason, you were looking at Bank of America earlier mm-hmm. this week. Uh, anything stand out, good or bad? Well, I mean, I think that James keys in on something there that's pretty important. I mean, the, there there isn't a lot to be excited about with these banks because so much of what they're doing right now is focused on cutting costs. Uh, you know, they're they're getting a lot of this litigation behind them, and now they're trying to figure out to sort of 
you know, ways to sort of eke out all of the efficiencies in their business model. But, you know, I mean, with Bank of America, they're doing a good job of meeting consumers uh, on their own terms. You could see that in 20% growth in mobile banking app users. Uh, but by the same token, I think the greater, uh, the bigger picture there, I think, is just really the commoditization of, of what these big banks do. And so that they just have to rely on making their money fewer ways. You know, that's going to be the investment banking wings and, uh, you know, lending. But but that that isn't enough to me, you know, to really justify investing in these banks because they're already so big to begin with. Yeah, b- before all the, 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 the financial crisis and, and subsequent litigation, the banks basically engaged in a sort of like uh, uh, conglomerate arbitrage, you know, where, where they, could, they could use the benefit of, of safer deposits and then do riskier banking activities with that money. And that's become harder. So w- w- the, the golden days of banking are over as far as I'm concerned. There's a startup company called Nest that sells internet-connected thermostats and smoke detectors. This week, Google bought Nest for $3.2 billion. And Jason, some people were saying they overpaid, but shares of Google were up this week. So clearly, there are some investors who don't think they overpaid. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that that remains to be seen. I mean, Nest, because it was a private company, um, the sales numbers have always been kind of estimated. And I've seen estimates everywhere from you know, $150 million uh, per year to, to around $300 million a year. So depending on what they make per year, you can get a better idea of what Google paid. Any which way you cut it, Google paid a lot of money for this investment. Now, they did have an interest in Nest before this with Google Ventures. So I would argue that they have uh, had some insight into the potential of this business model, at least, uh, before they made that offer. Uh, but it, it lends itself just to the greater argument of this Internet of Things trend that we're going to see play out here over the coming decade, where uh, virtually everything in the world is going to be connected in some capacity, and uh, the smart home is going to play a big big role in that. And so thermostats and lighting and audio and entertainment systems and things like that, those are going to be uh, things that people continue to connect in their homes. And I think that Nest was a, a good first step uh, to really get Google uh, a position as being a major player in this movement. Ron? Yeah, Google has its hands in so many different things, and you have to ask, is, is this a distraction or is it innovation? Is it the, the next stage in Google's evolution? Um, you know, I think it probably is, but whether we're looking at robots or cars or non-thermostats, um, they all have data collection in common. Um, you can learn a lot about people when you're involved in the connected home um, and, and you're constantly collecting data on folks through their uh, viewing what their habits are. So there, there could be a lot of um, use for all that data down the road, and Google certainly is in the data business. But, you know, they're, they're tricky. They're, they're like Amazon. They've got so many things that they're doing outside of their core business that, you know, uh, my feeble mind has no way to project where, where this is going. Yeah, they're like Amazon, except they're staggeringly profitable. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the, the, you know, the fear I think a lot of people have with this is because Google is known for mining their data and sending its advertisements based on the data they collect. I mean, it's reasonable to at least be concerned that maybe, you know, somewhere in the not too distant future, you're going to be uh, pitched an ad from your refrigerator or your thermostat or something like that. Uh, who really knows what they're going to do with this? I mean, it is just a thermostat, that's for sure. But the implications uh, are certainly interesting to think about. Last month, UPS said it would not be able to deliver some packages in time for Christmas because of so much last-minute online shopping. This week, shares of UPS fell after the company lowered guidance for the fourth quarter. Probably not a surprise, Ron. Right. How bad is it, though? It's really a function, I think, of poor planning. I mean, we they knew that there was going to be six less days of shopping um, in, during the holiday period. Um, they knew it was going to be cold. It's that time of year. 
Um, so I think there's just some poor planning here. They needed to hire an additional 30,000 temporary workers. That's an amazing amount of, of people that they needed to get this right. Um, so short holiday season, cold weather, increased workers, uh, poor planning overall. 2014, I think, will be fine. It's just they kind of bungled this quarter. Should we expect a similar announcement sometime soon from FedEx? Because FedEx, at least according to the reports, was in the same boat in terms of not being able to l- deliver some packages. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine why it wouldn't be consistent. Yep. Coming up, one of America's most dominant brands has a surprising new partnership. Stick around. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Ron Gross, and James Early. Uh, before we get back to the headlines, uh, James, you've been away for about six months. A couple quick questions. Um, first, to what extent, if any, did living in the Philippines impact the way you think as an investor? Uh, you know, we we were in the Philippines, but we had the, the fortune to travel to a number of different countries, Japan, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, went to Hong Kong, China. And so we saw a lot of different cultures. And I would say the idea of, of getting people aligned under a single idea or a single concept, the idea of buy-in, is, is more powerful than I realized. You know, if we try to get onto the subway in, in you know, country X versus country Y, you know, there can be a pretty big difference. And you realize you, you, you spread that across a whole society or even a, a company, and, and it can make a big difference. Now, long-time listeners know that you're a very healthy guy when it comes to your diet. Inter- your, you know, you're, you're very health-conscious, far more than I am. <laughs> How did that work out living in the Philippines? Well, you know, Chris, I'm just going to be honest. My, my, my cardiologist had warned me. He said the Philippines is the heart disease capital of Asia, so you be careful. <laughs> and, and so I went there, and I was careful. There was a lot of fried food, a lot of sugar, and, and so mm. we had, I was lucky to have a, a personal chef. You had very affordable. Uh, so I worked with him. It took several weeks to a month to actually make him understand my, my diet. But, but once we, we had that Did that you say you're the chef? I did have... It's, it's, it's not like a, a high so thing. I'm so glad it was you there, that had you know. a chef and not me. <laughs> I can't get <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, Eventually, we got it. So basically, I ate the same kind of fish every day and, and a fish in it, like a humongous salad. And it, it, was, it was unusual, but, but it was very healthy. So you have a cardiologist? Like, I mean... Not normally? like a personal cardiologist. <laughs> <laughs> Checked out, right? Got to figure we're about the same age around there. I mean, I'm kind of <laughs> feeling bad now. I don't have a heart doctor. Yeah, you, you probably better. go get this thing checked. Down. Listen to James. Get healthy, man. All right, let's uh, put James back to work. Intel made a fourth quarter profit of $2.6 billion, but shares were down on Friday. Was it just not enough? Did they lower guidance? What's going on? It's funny, Chris, because just the day before, the shares were, were way up, and then they're right back down again like a, like a balloon. Basically, their their server, their data center revenue was lower than, than people expected. The PC being dead motif is kind of like maybe hit a bottom, so, so shares were actually going up on, on that and on, on possible... Uh, uh, tablet sales increases, that kind of stuff. But the, the server business was not to expectations, and, and guidance looked like it's going to be flat. So those things just brought it back down. Yeah, I think this is just a blip. Our thesis is that Intel was late to the mobile game, but they're they're not out, and they've got some great processors coming out, and that will drive growth in the future. So we like Intel here very much. Shares of Beam up 25% this week. That is because Beam is being acquired by Suntory Holdings in a deal worth $16 billion. Uh, Jason, you've obviously got Jim Beam, but also Knob Creek, Maker's Mark, the Skinny Girl line of beverages. This is a pretty robust portfolio, and as a result... Suntory Holdings is now going to be the third largest spirits company in the world. We've been talking about this for a while. Every time you say Suntory, now I just cannot get lost in translation out of my mind. It Bill just, Murray, it's so the classic funny. scene. I laugh a little bit in my mind. It's uh, no, I mean I think this was a great deal. You know, when when Beam 
spun off from Fortune Brands, which it was a part of a couple of years back. Many of us thought that it was going to be an acquisition target at some point for something like a Diageo to, to be able to incorporate more into that uh, portfolio. And Beam has a what's traditionally been a very bourbon-heavy portfolio. They've done a good job of making these little bolt-on acquisitions to, to broaden that portfolio out with different vodkas and gins and whatnot. So they've done a good job with that. It was not a cheap deal. I mean, Beam, uh, Suntory paid around 21 times EB to EBITDA uh, or bid the stock up to about 36 times earnings. And I think there are a couple of reasons why they could get away with that. Um, you know, number one, when you have a market leader, they're never cheap. And Beam is, is the market leader in, in bourbon. Uh, and then number two, you look just at this long sort of runway that Spirits possesses. I mean, it's, it's just, it's not a very disruptable market. I mean, their new products will come to, to come to market, but, but the market will generally stay the same. So there, there are going to be a lot of, of, uh, you know, high times, so to speak, for, for these spirits, uh, makers to, to come. And so they could, they could pay a little bit of a premium because it's going to last for a while. And do you think we're going to see more consolidation? Some people are looking at Brown Foreman, which is the parent company of Jack Daniels, Southern Comfort, and thinking, well, they could be next. I think that's possible. I think that I'm looking a little bit more towards consolidation in the in the beer sector, actually, because we've seen just this real this peak of this craft brew movement, and it's been it's been great for beer lovers. I mean, I can't I can't say how much fun it's been, but uh, maybe from <laughs> why, the why can't you say how much yeah. fun? <laughs> from the perspective, a reason. it's a family show <laughs> because it's such a because it's such a fragmented industry at this point. I think you're going to see some more uh, consolidation in in the craft beer uh, market here in the next couple of years. So I'd be keeping keeping an eye out on that. Hershey is America's biggest chocolate maker with 42% of the entire market and shares up this week on two bits of news, Ron. First, Hershey is introducing a new line of chocolate spreads, including a hazelnut-flavored one resembling Nutella. And second is the news that Hershey and 3D Systems have reached an agreement to develop ways to use 3D printing technology to produce edible foods, including, yes, candy. Mm -hmm. Is this... What am I to think of this? Well, the first the, the spreads. The first thing I say was, what took them so long? That seems to make perfect sense. Right. But then I say they kind of have a, a battle here because somehow Nutella has convinced the world that it's not candy, that it's a hazelnut spread. <laughs> well, what, what is Nutella? Can, it's, it's a hazelnut. I have never had spread. Nutella. Looks like peanut butter, but and it's what hazelnut is hazelnut? And it's just like a nut. That's a nut. So it's not it's candy. Nutella. So it's the name. <laughs> the parents Nutella. think that they can give it for breakfast, and it's okay. Yeah. Hershey's. The word is right there, big on the bottle. You think candy. You think chocolate. I think that's an uphill battle there. Um, and yet, sales of Nutella have tripled in the last five yeah, years. Yeah, that's because they've the done a great Nutella job. Nutella have sugar, it. though? Is it really candy? Oh, yeah. the wool okay. So it's really, size. okay, I got it. Got yeah, yeah, this protein, um, like you would get in a peanut butter, too, because there is a nut, but there's definitely sugar. Jason, we got about 10 seconds. 3D printing, is that the future of Hershey's? I can't fathom uh, that it is, but it's really interesting to see. You know, they, they are such a, a nationally well known brand. I mean, it, for the longest yeah, time, it's just been candy. But to see like them, candy or, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a maybe there's a market for three D printed gobstoppers or something. I, I just don't know. All right, up next, we're heading to the Motor City for a report on the North American International Auto Show. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The North American International Auto Show kicked off this week in Detroit. With the expected number of attendees, going to be more than 700,000 people. Paul Leinert has spent his career covering the automotive industry and is the Detroit Bureau Chief for Reuters, and he joins me now. Paul, thanks for coming back on the show. <laughs> I always have fun doing the show, Chris. Thanks. 
what is your headline at this moment for the Detroit Auto Show? It's it's ongoing, but the press got to get in first. You've had a couple of days to see what all the automakers have. What's your headline so far? I'm I'm <clears throat> wrestling with uh, the cliche back to the future or perhaps ahead to the past. Uh, the, the big news of all things is not green cars this year. It ain't electric vehicles or hybrids. It's a big pickup truck in a new crop of performance cars. I think I could have written that headline about 40 years ago. <laughs> um, let's talk about the pickup truck first, because uh, as some of our listeners may have seen, Ford unveiled a new F-150, and it's already one of the most popular trucks in the world. And this new model weighs about 700 pounds less because they've replaced most of the steel body with aluminum. What do you make of this move? And not just any old aluminum, but they tell us military-grade aluminum. Now, I don't, I don't know if that means it's got bullet-piercing uh, bullet armor, but it's supposed to be like a Humvee, I guess, that, that grade. Nobody's driven the trucks yet. They look fabulous. They really do. Uh, and they're able to put a much smaller engine in that pickup truck now and get the same performance they could with a big V8 in the current truck. They come out this fall. I think it's a risk, something of a gamble for Ford, because those traditional truck buyers don't want to sacrifice towing capacity. Ford says they've been able to maintain that. With the lighter truck, it's still durable, it's still flexible, it's still practical, and it has all sorts of cool little gadgets on it. So I guess we'll see when that truck hits the market if they can pull it off. But it's definitely a financial gamble. Ford's CFO said, yes, working with aluminum is more expensive than working with steel. I can see this going one of two ways. If it pays off for Ford and it gets a lot of acceptance, then they are far and away the market leader in this, and everyone else is playing catch-up. If this doesn't work out, though, Paul, this could really hamper the company because the trucks are generally more profitable. They bring in more money for the company than the cars do. Uh, And again, since this is a show for investors, that won't mean good things for Ford stock. These big trucks are the single most profitable vehicles in either Ford's or GM's lineup, for that matter. I believe they account for something like two-thirds of Ford's global profit. So in the margins on these things can run anywhere from five to 10,000 bucks. And if you're even talking about a high-end vehicle, a King Ranch F-150, the margins are probably like 12 to 15,000 bucks or more. So it's a gamble in that sense. It's a gamble in the sense that they're much more expensive to make than the current pickup truck. And it's a gamble in the sense that they run the risk of losing the title of America's best-selling truck, which I believe they've had for 37 years. What is the mood that you've found talking to people? Obviously, there's always going to be, at any convention, whatever it is, there's always going to be some level of optimism. But considering that we just came out of a year that, all things being equal, was a pretty darn good year for the auto industry. Oh, yeah. Is there that level of optimism? Are people trying to recalibrate their expectations for 2014? That's that's a good word, and I think that's been building for a little while as people as people around the industry realize that the growth has started to slow down a little bit. So recalibrating expectations is probably the right way to phrase it. 
cautious optimism if we want to fall back on another old cliche. We're watching more incentives or incentives creep up anyway. I, I believe the numbers in December where Ford was spending an average of $3,900 in incentives on vehicles, and a lot of those were on the big F-150 pickup truck. GM spending $3,500 on average in incentives. So that's a lot of money being laid on the hood of a vehicle to get people to walk out of the showroom with a new car or truck. That's going to put pressure on pricing and, by extension, pressure on profits that's coming this year within the next 12 months. Now, I get that your headline for the auto show is bigger is better, the the move towards (laughs) trucks, horsepower, all of that, and yet... Last week at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, one of the big storylines out of that show was the presence of the auto industry. Nine of the top ten automakers were there, and there were a lot of stories about the connected car, the Internet-enabled car. And I'm wondering, how much of that are you seeing at the auto show in Detroit this week? It's funny. You... you said it well, Chris. This was probably the biggest presence the auto industry has ever had at CES in Las Vegas, and I think that trend is going to continue as we're watching kind of this convergence convergence of autos and electronics. And it's all driven by consumers and especially by younger consumers with mobile devices who want to stay connected no matter where they are, but especially connected when they're outside the house and in the car. We're not hearing too much about it this year at the auto show. There are different focuses there, but there are plenty of displays with lots and lots of features on infotainment and connectivity. So the auto industry is very mindful of that. The other pitch from CES last week in Las Vegas that we heard, and we're beginning to hear more of it in Detroit, is on self-driving cars, autonomous driving which two years ago you really only heard Google talk about. Now you're hearing companies from BMW and Audi to Ford and GM talking about it. When do you think that becomes mainstream? And mainstream in my book is we're talking tens of thousands of vehicles on the road. We're talking 2020 or later is my guess. But companies already such as Nissan have said we're going to have a number of autonomous vehicles on the road by 2020. You you can understand there are many, many issues that are going to need to be resolved, notably safety, uh, including at the regulatory level uh, from the federal government, as well as liability just at the manufacturer's level and the personal level. So I think it's going to take a while to sort out those issues. The technology, believe it or not, is pretty much already there. You're you're starting to see, see Much of that trickled into especially luxury cars, the German brands, the Japanese brands, and the American brands. You mentioned safety, and I am curious, when we were talking earlier about gadgets in the car, Internet-enabled cars, and more and more screens in cars, what are people saying about those devices that are now being built into cars and the trend that we've seen over the last decade banning texting while driving and that sort of thing, it seems like those two trends are going to come to a head pretty soon. Well, uh, NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, is already deep into the issue of driver distraction, okay, and texting would fall under that. Talking on a cell phone would fall under that as well. So 
I think you're going to see some fairly stiff rules pretty soon at the federal level. The industry seems to believe that one way around that is voice recognition. That is, if you want to text somebody from your car, from the mobile device in your car, you're going to push a button perhaps on the steering wheel or the console and speak your message and it will automatically get sent out as a text. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Paul Leinert. He covers the auto industry for Reuters. I want to talk a little bit about some of the CEOs involved here. And let's start with Mary Barra, the new CEO at General Motors. She's already having quite a week. She officially took over as CEO this week. And General Motors also won North American Car of the Year and Truck of the Year with the Corvette Stingray and the Chevy Silverado. The pessimist in me say, says, well, it's all downhill in 2014 for Mary Barra. But it seems like, to the extent that a single person is the star of the auto show in Detroit this week, it really does seem like it's Mary Barra. You know what? It's fascinating to watch, Chris. And, and by the way, just uh, uh, as a side comment, that's not a bad way to start your new tenure as CEO with car and truck of the year. Right? No, no, no. It's, it's definitely a good um, way to start. <laughs> Obviously, GM and the new executive management team there have a lot of issues we're going to have to tackle with this year. But watching Mary in action at a press conference, watching her walk through the show, I think she walked yesterday through with Michigan Governor Rick Snyder. She is, she is a bit like a rock star. Yeah, she's a novelty because she's the first woman ever to run a major automaker. But you know what? This is one competent woman. Uh, we, we, did a fairly lengthy story in Reuters on her early this week, talked to a lot of current and former GM executives and people who've known her and worked with her for 30 years at General Motors. This woman is competent, but the flip side of that is she's incredibly humble. I think one executive told me she is one of those rare people who will tell you if she doesn't know something. But she also has to, seems to have a pretty good way with people. She's a great morale builder and team leader. And I think that's going to work wonders for General Motors internally. I think it remains to be seen what, how she's going to present to investors and what, what sort of rapport she can build within the financial community. It's interesting, though, when you look at her resume, and she has spent all 33 of her professional years at General Motors, her most recent position was VP of Global Product Development. And when you look at GM's business and how much of it is outside the United States, she, in hindsight, she seemed like the obvious choice for CEO. Is that only in hindsight? Or, 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 or were there people putting her on the short list from the get-go? I think it was Dan Ackerson himself, uh, the outgoing CEO, who put Mary on the short list. I think he he has probably considered him, himself a bit of her mentor, but she also has had a few other mentors in the GM system, former executive VPs, presidents, CEOs. She, she was one of a handful of people, I think, who were considered by the board of directors. But she has an interesting background. She's never run an operating unit, per se, that is, she never ran... GM Brazil or GM Europe, and yet she's had these global jobs, including most recently, as you mentioned, global product development. Before that, she ran human resources during the GM bankruptcy and immediately after that, and right before that, she ran global manufacturing. So here's a person with a deep technical background. She's got an MBA from Stanford, 
So she really knows many facets of the business. She is uber competent. Alan Mulally, the CEO at Ford Motor, was in the news recently by saying he was not going to replace Steve Ballmer as CEO at Microsoft. He was on pretty much everyone's short list uh, to replace Ballmer at Microsoft. First and foremost, were you surprised that he came out and said that? <laughs> surprised only, only in this sense that Alan almost never says exactly what he means. There is almost a lot of nuance in a lot of the stuff that Alan says, and you almost always have to read between the lines. Reuters had done a number of stories talking to Ford insiders and Microsoft insiders about this very delicate dance that Alan had done for a few months with Microsoft's board of directors. Some At some point before Christmas, we began hearing that that dance was beginning to slow down a bit. We, we didn't totally understand all the reasons why, and it's never really clear if one side or the other cut off communication, but I think at, at some point, Alan either took himself out of the running or it was made clear that he probably was no longer the number one candidate. He did the smartest thing he possibly could have done and just came right out and said, look, I'm not going to Microsoft, I'm staying at Ford. That was probably the most blunt, specific, forward statement he's made in the last six months regarding that whole dance. He's staying at Ford, but he's not staying for long. He has said that he will step down in the next year or so. Do you expect Ford to go outside the company to find someone to replace Alan Mulally, or do you expect they will do what General Motors did and look for someone internal? I think Mark Fields, for at least the past year, has been clearly anointed as the heir apparent there. Mark, in fact, runs the Wednesday morning business planning reviews at Ford with Alan Mulally sitting right next to him. But Mark Scott has had a long career at Ford. He knows the system. I think he's liked by the Ford family and trusted by the board of directors. So he has positioned himself to slide into that role when it's time to turn the reins over. And finally, in terms of auto production, Tesla Motors is much, much smaller than both General Motors and Ford. And yet, Elon Musk, the CEO at Tesla Motors, has really captivated not just the business world, but certainly the investing world over the last year or so, particularly when you look at the performance of Tesla's stock. I am curious, though, how is he regarded within the automotive industry? Let's just talk about General Motors, okay, because I have more direct knowledge of that. I, I think Elon is very well regarded by a number of top executives at GM. Uh, I, GM, as you may know, actually started a Team Tesla to take a much deeper look at that company some months back. So I, I think GM probably, rather than maybe 40 years ago, they would have dismissed an, uh, a startup like uh, Tesla out of hand, now is taking a completely different approach and saying, what can we learn from these guys? What are they doing differently that we might apply in one form or another to our own business model to make the business more efficient, more productive, and, and uh, maybe more profitable? All right. Final question, and I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, you have so much experience in the auto industry, and therefore I am guessing you are not easily impressed. But going back to the North American International Auto Show, was there anything you've seen so far this year at the show that made you say, wow? 
You know, it was something that I totally did not expect. I knew it was going to be there. My expectations were low, and when I finally saw it in the flesh, it was like, oh my goodness, this is so much better than I thought. It was the redesigned Chrysler 200 sedan. Really? Mid-sized family sedan going head-to-head with the Accord and Camry. You, I'm sure you're aware Chrysler has never in my memory had a competitive car in that segment. This one might actually do the trick. Paul Liner covers the auto industry for Reuters. You can read his stuff. You can follow him on Twitter. Paul, thanks so much for being here. Always a pleasure, Chris. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. Yes, money in my pockets and memories on my mind. Memories of an old the one I left behind. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio once again, Ron Gross, James Early, and Jason Moser. Guys, that time once again for the stocks on our radar. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Going back to Coach, C-O-H. Um, company reports next week. Um, they've been struggling in the U.S. I think that actually is what's creating our opportunity. We like what's going on in Europe, China, moving into men's accessories. We think the stock is very cheap right here, but I do want to see what they have to say. Do they have a new CEO lined up? Because Lou Frankfurt is, is walking out the door this year, isn't he? Yes, they do. Um, Victor Lewis, I believe is his name, a, um, a form, a, a, an employee that they elevated. But more importantly, perhaps, is a new creative director who replaced a, a longtime um, employee of Coach there, who we think is actually going to do great things. All right, James, what are you looking at? Female Health Company. This is an income investor recommendation. The ticker is FHCO. They make the only FDA and World Health approved women's condom. Uh, it's the primary buyers are, are USAID and, and uh, various uh, United Nations charitable groups. But when I was in Bangkok, I ate at a restaurant called Cabbages and Condoms. This is a famous restaurant. Uh, this guy is a big <laughs> philanthropist, and, and condom the whole thing has like condom decor everywhere. And at the end, they give you like a condom. It's a family. The family went so, uh, like a bag of, of condom goodies. So I saw some of these things. Just, just looked at them. But it's a it's a company. I think it pays a three point five percent yield, and they have sort of a monopoly because they have only the approved the only one approved by those two organizations. So they get all the nonprofit business. So when you get the bill at the end of dinner, instead of coming with a little mint, it comes with condoms? It does. It cut About five or six, seven of them. I don't remember how many. I have nothing to add to that. Jason Moser, what do you got? Best stock to watch ever. That was great. Um, I'm going to stick with the the smart home theme here. I've mentioned Control 4 before, but with the Nest Google deal, uh, Control 4 has certainly shot uh, back onto a lot of folks' radars. It was up about 40% the day after that announcement and another 25% the following day. Uh, But Control 4 plays into that long-term turn of the smart home and the Internet of Things, and they make uh, the products that are connected in the home, like your lights and your entertainment systems and smoke alarms, and they also make the, the brains of the connectors. Uh, really, this is an interesting market opportunity. They have a simple device discovery protocol software that's proprietary and bring a lot of partners under their umbrella there to, to work with their uh, technology and uh, just a tremendous market opportunity out there. And the ticker? CTRL. All right. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. We'll see you next week.